Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 20, Master of All. Last week, we had the climactic Battle of Chaeronea, where the combined Athenian and Theban forces faced off against the Macedonian army. After a hard-fought struggle, the young prince Alexander dealt a decisive charge against the Theban Athenians. Philip was now the unquestioned power in all of Greece. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, we have sources that claim that Philip was acting very restrained, not indulging in his success, while it's also said that he wept as he watched the sacred band of Thebes get cut down, hearkening back to his days as a hostage in Thebes. We have one contrary source that says Philip threw a wine-fueled celebratory party after the victory, having just a good old-fashioned drunk. The sources may seem contradictory, but I view it like toothpaste ratings. Four out of five dentists recommend a brand, and then you have the fifth dentist who hate it. Philip now had a choice. He could come down hard on Athens and Thebes, and it would not be seen as Philip being overly harsh. Defeated city-states levied punitive actions against defeated rivals after war. After the battle, Philip stayed at Chaeronea, and he had his dead soldiers cremated and erected a monument on top of the burial site. Philip also did the same for the dead soldiers of Athens and Thebes. At some point, Philip would invade into the Peloponnese after negotiations with Sparta turned sour, so he ravaged the area, but did not attack Sparta. With Athens, Philip had decided to be magnanimous in victory, and so Alexander, Antipater, and an entourage of men brought back the remains of the deceased to Athens, as well as a message letting Athens know that all captured prisoners would be returned without ransom. Despite Athens' constant badgering over the previous eight years since the peace of 346, Philip was kind towards Athens. Now I know what you're probably thinking. Wow, what a nice guy Philip is, letting the Athenians off the hook so easily after years of antagonistic treatment. Well, Philip had a deeper plan in motion, and Athenian assistance for this plan would be crucial. While all of this was in the works, Athens was in a panic. Philip's intentions had not yet been revealed, and so, Athens began to desperately prepare for a siege. They armed men up to the ages of 60 and armed slaves, promising them their freedom if they fought to defend the city. Ever the political animals, blame for the defeat was foisted upon one man, the Athenian general who had led the Athenian forces at the battle. In a kangaroo court, the general was tried, sentenced, and executed. Meanwhile, ever the instigator, Demosthenes rallied the city and prepared them for a heroic last stand. The last stand that would never happen. As Alexander and his entourage arrived, Philip's goodwill towards the city became readily apparent, and, anticlimactically, the city mellowed out. Demosthenes, still an unrepentant hater, continued to advocate for continued hostility. You gotta give it to the man. He was preying on Philip's downfall. Demosthenes just has that dog in him. I also wonder what happened with the slaves. Generally, it's a bad idea to arm the people you're oppressing. By giving them sharp, pointy objects, it must have been an awkward conversation. Hey, Stelios. I know we promised you freedom if you fought, but surprisingly, we don't need to fight anymore. So just pass me the spear. 
Yeah. Yeah, by the non-pointy end. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. Back to the topic at hand. Philip's terms to Athens were relatively late, with no Macedonian garrison to be installed in the city. And unlike when Sparta defeated Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War, the democratic process of Athens was left intact. Philip also did not ask for the Athenian dissidents who provoked the war in the first place. Demosthenes would live to see another day. The Athenian leadership accepted the terms, and in their thanks, granted citizenship to Philip and Alexander. This would be Alexander's only visit to the esteemed city of Athens, and Philip had never, and would never, step foot in the city. The kindness shown to Athens by Philip was not given to the city of Thebes. Some of the Theban leaders were either exiled or fled the city with much haste. On the flip side, exiled citizens returned to Thebes, citizens with influence who would be grateful to Philip. Still, Philip installed a garrison of Macedonian soldiers in the Academy of Thebes, which ironically was done by the Spartan years ago, which had provoked an uprising. I guess after displaying overwhelming might and crushing your enemies in battle, you quell a lot of naysayers and people who may have objections. The Boeotian League, which Thebes had long been the preeminent power, was reshaped, and it was reshaped to call Thebes' power, and the cities that had been destroyed by Thebes were rebuilt and inhabited. The city of Corinth also had a garrison installed. As Philip continued south, Philip did not forget those who had aided him, and Phocis, where he had wintered the year prior, had their debt to Delphi drastically reduced. All in all, not much had really changed politically in Greece with Philip's victory. He had garrisons in Thebes, Corinth, and Chalcis, but that was it. All the other states in Greece knew which way the wind was blowing and sought to ally themselves with Macedonia. Sparta, like I said earlier, did not want to play nice, but they were all bark and no bite, so they were readily ignored, perhaps a fate even worse for the Spartans as they fell into obscurity. The subjugation of the smaller states were keen foreign policy decisions on their parts. As Philip and Macedonia were far away, it was much better to pledge allegiance to someone far away than to be controlled by your local power broker. Philip, for his part, was keen to not alienate the states that came to him. You see, Philip had a far grander plan than control of Greece. Philip had set his eyes east to the bountiful land of Persia. That's right. Persia will soon be the playground of our narrative moving forward. But before that, let's follow Philip's train of thought. Up until now, we haven't heard any anti-Persian rhetoric or gotten any glimpses into Philip's mind. The concept of invading Persia had been around for decades. And this was not the first serious thought in the past half century or so, but was a common idea in philosophical circles. The most prominent of these philosophers was a man named Isocrates. Isocrates, by 338 BC, was an old man, old even by the standards of our day, at a whopping 98 years old. Isocrates had lived through the Peloponnesian War and all the power struggles afterwards with Sparta, then Thebes, and now with Macedonia. This life experience really provided the concept of invading Persia because it was born as a way to unify Greeks, 
to create a pan-Hellenic peace. The notion came from the fact that the city-states of Greece were always at war with one another. The balance of power was always precariously perched on a series of alliances that could be broken at any moment for an alliance with another state that seemed more profitable, and even better, could cut their enemies down to size. The fighting over land disputes and the agrarian lifestyle of many of the common people would always be a contributing factor to war. We do, though, have one instance of the majority of the Hellenistic states allying together, and that was during the Persian invasions at 480 BC. So the idea came down to this. To unify all of Greece, a joint invasion of Persia would be led by a capable commander who would invade Persian territory and capture the fertile territory of Anatolia, the region which is now modern-day Turkey. The prevailing feeling about invading Persia was built on a need for revenge. For the invasions in 492, 480, and the Persian involvement in the political affairs of Greece, sending money and support to different factions at different times to keep the Greeks at each other's throats. And the xenophobic beliefs that the citizens of Asia were living softer lives despite their barbaric status, and it should be Greeks living the high lives while the Persians toiled in the fields. So basically, the plan was to rule into Persia, conquer a bunch of land, potentially the entire Persian Empire, and enslave the entire population while the Greeks lounge, eat olives, drink wine, and discuss philosophy. Truly, the height of civilization. That was the broad strokes of it. Isocrates and others had been appealing to many city-states, but to no avail, none answered the call. Then, ironically to me, Isocrates being an Athenian and believing in democracy began to appeal to powerful tyrants in Greece to lead the way, thinking that pesky democracy was bogging everything down. So he appealed to Jason of Fury, then his son Alexander, to the tyrant in Syracuse, Dionysus, and most recently, Isocrates had lobbied to Philip to undertake a Persian invasion. But Philip had not really given an answer either way. It would seem that Philip took it to heart because we can now see how it affected his post Chaeronea settlements in Greece. Philip wanted to play nice with Athens because of their powerful navy, a navy that would be instrumental in ferrying soldiers across the Bosphorus and, more critically, help establish the supply lines. This is why, aside from a few city states, the rest of Greece did not receive Macedonian garrisons. The invasion of Persia would see Philip leave Greece for years. You see, Philip was still relatively young. He would have been roughly 44 in 338 BC, and it would not have been unusual for him to live another 20 years, even more with the longevity of his family, when they weren't getting murdered. Philip wanted to lead a united army of not just Macedonians, but allied contingents from across Greece, and to do so, that meant he needed to be on good terms with as many states as possible. We have a quote that comes from Philip himself in which he says, I'd rather be called a good man for a while rather than master for a little while. Philip's control over Greece didn't need to be overt. He felt that subtle influence was the way to go. And it's easy to do so when you have the most powerful army in Greece. It's like what Theodore Roosevelt said, speak softly but carry a large stick. Then, 
In the winter of 338 BC, Philip sent out invitations to the city-states of Greece to join him in Corinth. Philip was once again using symbolism to his advantage. For you see, it was at Corinth that the Greeks allied themselves against Persia the first time. Philip was using the city as a way to spark remembrance and to lobby for his idea of a unified invasion force. Despite all that, Philip was slowly taking his time to build toward the idea of the invasion, opting first to create peace in Greece. Everyone invited came to Corinth except for, can you guess it? If you said Sparta, pat yourself on the back, you're right. Sparta was still demonstrating bad manners and did not answer the invite, which in a way helped Philip. It showed that Philip was sincere about peace and that the meeting was voluntary. At the gathering, Philip was in his element. Ever the consummate statesman, he did not act with impunity, nor did he seem to revel in his power. He was friendly and spun the meeting as a way for everyone to enjoy the benefits of peace. The terms of the peace were simple. The text of the treaty has been partly preserved, but it runs like this. I swear by Zeus, Earth, Sun, Poseidon, Athena, Ares, and all the gods and goddesses, I will abide by the peace. I will not break the agreements with Philip the Macedonian, nor will I take up arms with hostile intent against any one of those who abide by the oaths either by land or sea. They created a treaty of which the provisions said, the constitutions of the member states would remain unchanged, that violence between the member states was no longer permitted, that in case of an overthrow or government or Congress, a representative was to meet at Corinth, that it would establish the facts and declare war, that the army's league was to be commanded by Philip, and that the League's member states would send a number of soldiers to the League's army in proportion to their size. To enforce the peace, a council was created that would meet annually, and it would be overseen by a hegemon. I wonder who the hegemon could be. The creation of the League and its rules gave Philip uncontested control of Greece for all intents and purposes. It was now a crime to go against Philip in any way. With these terms in hands, the city-states went home to discuss, and they would send the responses to Philip in the spring of 337 BC. As you probably assumed, no one in the right minds decided they would oppose Philip, and Athens, after years of belligerence, decided it was better to just join the club. But some still advocated a wait-and-see approach. Some assumed, rightly, that Philip had a larger plan in motion, but they did not know what it could be. In the spring then of 337 BC, everyone came back and gave their oaths of loyalty. Everyone except the Spartans, who were probably still salty about their territory being raided. Everything was lining up for Philip. Now that the League of Corinth was created and Philip was the leader of the League, he was now master of all. The Persian invasion went from an ephemeral concept to suddenly a very real possibility. He proposed the invasion to the League, and everyone was game for it. Philip was granted the title of Strategos Autocrater, essentially meaning Commander-in-Chief. 
the word strategos meant general. Once the invasion of Greece was announced to each city-state, Athens was rather miffed because they realized they'd be used for their navy. But they had already made their peace with it. Phocion, one of the prominent men of the city, had this to say. Let us make the best of it and not be discouraged. Our ancestors were sometimes in command and sometimes under command. But by doing well in both positions, save both their city and the whole of Greece. Essentially, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. All the city-states were now involved in the Greek invasion. Well, almost all of them. Isocrates' vision of a Panhellenic army invading Persia would come true. And now, Philip's power was at its zenith. We'll leave it here for now. Philip now had what he desired, peace in Greece, and the backing of the city-states to invade the Persian Empire. Like always, if you like what you heard, give the podcast five stars and a review. I'll have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.